and make it into some big extravaganza, but it's not meant to just be this time of year. It's not meant just to be a season of our life. Christmas is meant to be a livelihood that we have. That doesn't mean, if from you Christmas fanatics, that doesn't mean you keep the tree up all year round or you play Christmas songs all year round. Uh, what it means, it's meant to impact us in an incredible way, and we're going to see just that this morning. If you're in, in the book of Colossians, we're going to be in chapter 1. We're going to be focusing in verses 15 through 20, but as uh, you make your way there, just a little background. Colossians is written by the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote the majority of the New Testament. The New Testament is, is consistent of letters uh, to different groups of people, and Colossians is one of them. It's one of four letters that Paul wrote while he was in prison. Um, because of what Colossians gives us, and Paul had visitors who are able to come and leave, we can come to the uh, assumption that he was in prison in Rome, to which the book of Acts ends. Paul is writing to a group of believers that he has never met physically. You can pick that up as you read through the book. as he's mentioning never meeting them face to face. It's a lot like the letter he wrote to the believers uh, known as the Romans. But Paul has a contact or a couple contacts and connections with this group of believers. Uh, one is Epaphras, which we can read of his name in verse 7 of chapter 1. And the other one is Onesimus which we meet in chapter 4, verse 9. Both of them are mentioned in his letter to Philemon. In verse 23, Paul refers to Epaphras as the fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. He was from this church. He possibly was the individual that spent time in prison uh, with Paul in Rome and went back and planted this church in Colossae. Um, but we don't know that for sure. Onesimus is another connection, most likely from this church as well. He receives attention in the book of Philemon, to which Paul is writing to the individual Philemon, as Onesimus was a slave, and he did something that deserved disciplinary action, and he ran to Paul. Well, Paul writes Philemon and asks that uh, Philemon uh, put Onesimus' charge on him, that he would be held accountable for what Onesimus did, and then release him as a slave, and instead see him as a brother in Christ. When the opening of Colossians... Paul begins with what we're usually familiar with, if you read any of Paul's letters, with his introduction and a prayer. In verses 3 through 8, Paul begins his prayer and his, his praise of this group of believers. And then verse 9 through 14, what Paul does is kind of gives us an intro to the purpose of this letter. His heart's desire for this group of believers, his heart's desire for all believers who would come upon this letter. And so Paul's purpose and desire for us and for this group of believers, beginning in verse 9, I'm sorry, beginning in yeah, verse 9, is that they may be filled with the knowledge of His will and in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, and giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. And as Paul lifts up that prayer and says, this is what I want for you, that you continue to grow, you continue to mature, you continue to know God, he begins in verse 15 by, by telling us who Jesus Christ is according to what we would call a Christmas understanding. So this is Paul's Christmas story that he writes to the Colossians. It would seem that Paul has come to some uh, information about this church that they have a weak Christology. Christology is the understanding of the person, nature, view of Christ. And throughout this letter, Paul is, is letting them know who Christ is and how that should impact everything they do as far as the church and as far as worship. 
And the reality is, for our own life, and in this place today, our view of Jesus Christ, His nature, who He is, and what He has done, impacts our worship, it impacts our understanding of His Word, it impacts our proclamation of His Gospel. It all comes to, how well do we know Jesus? And so Paul begins by wanting them to understand that, that Christ is supreme and that He is all-sufficient, and this is what Christmas is about. So let's read verses 15 through 20, and we're going to walk through this and see how this relates to Christmas, but also relates to our own life. He is the image of the invisible God. He is as Christ, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. There's a lot of things we can draw from. The very first thing I want us to see is that Christ is supreme. In verses 15 through 17 of these, what we just read, we're told of Christ's supremacy over all creation. In verse 18, we're told of Christ's supremacy over all of God's people. Each time Paul is led to point out Christ's supremacy, it begins with a tag. He is. Verse 15, He is. Verse 17, He is. And twice in verse 18, Paul says that He is. Christmas, therefore, is a celebration that Christ is supreme over all creation. It begins in verse 15 that He is the image of the invisible God. This last week or last Sunday, we, we got out of here really quick and so I uh, didn't really get to talk to anybody. We were running up to Chillicothe where my, my granddad was and they'd called the family in. And so last week we were with our family and sitting with my granddad every day and my granny and, and just talking and, and reminiscing and we started bringing out pictures. And it was really kind of cool to bring out pictures. We had pictures of Abby on my phone, and then there were pictures of my mom when she was little. And you just, and I, I know you've had these same conversations, like, wow, they're just, they're a spinning image of each other. And then there'll be times we'll see a picture of Jamie when she's little, and like, well, Abby's just like a mini Jamie. But the one that took it all was my brother. He has a set of twins, his youngest, a boy and a girl, and the boy's name is Henry. And we had a picture of Henry uh, from this last year, and we brought up a picture of my dad when he was Henry's uh, age at the time, and they looked like twins. I mean, it was, it was just incredible to see that. And I know you've had conversations like this where you gather with family and gone through pictures and like, oh, well, that looks like so-and-so, or that, that, that reminds me of, of whoever in our family, and oh, they just resemble them so much. This is what Paul is doing when he says that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He is saying that Christ is the visible manifestation of the invisible Creator. Christ is the visible representation of God who sinful man cannot look upon. Christ is the visible representation of who God created all mankind to be. See, Christmas is not only celebrating Jesus came to make God known, but Christmas celebrates that Jesus Christ came to make God visible. For all to see. And as Christ made God visible, we as Christians who form the body of Christ are to make Christ visible to this world. Christmas is a celebration that God can be known. 
He can be seen. He can be heard. And the church and the Word of God is the medium to which God uses so other people can see, know, and hear Him. And the people of God are the instruments that God wants to use. Part of Christ's supremacy in verse 15 is that He is the firstborn of all creation. If you read through the Old Testament, you'll see that firstborn carries a lot of weight within the family. Israel was called the firstborn of God. And throughout the Davidic uh, prophecy, speaking of the Messiah, it was later referred to Jesus Christ as the firstborn. In the Jewish birthright system, the firstborn in the family would receive a higher rank within the family. And here in the Bible, God, Paul is using this sort of illustration, but he doesn't want us to misunderstand he is the firstborn, meaning that He is before all things, in verse 17. He, in Him all things hold together. Meaning He is not a part of creation. He is the firstborn of creation or the origin of it. Christ is the absolute heir, the sovereign Lord over all creation. And though Jesus is born in Bethlehem, what the Bible tells us here in Colossians is that the Christmas story existed before Bethlehem. His supremacy has no match in verse 16. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. It's a play on words from verse 15. As invisible creators made visible by Christ, Christ reigns supreme over the visible and invisible. And so when it comes to the supremacy of Christ, it doesn't matter the reality, be it physical or spiritual. It doesn't matter the reference being past, present, or future. All things throughout all time owe their existence to this little bitty baby that was born in a manger. And therefore, all visible and invisible things belong to Christ. It doesn't matter the relationship with Christ. If you're here today and you are not a Christian, you are not saved, guess what? You still owe your allegiance to Christ and He is still over your life. And He gives you the opportunity to be part of His family. It says in verse 16, the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. These four words capture both realms of existence of the spiritual and the physical. What we're told in Ephesians chapter 6 that we are in constant battle with. Yet it says that Christ reigns supreme over all of them. Earthly thrones ruled by their power from the all-powerful. Demonic dominions receive authoritative permission from the all-powerful. Even as a baby, newly born in a manger, Christ reigned over all things. Nothing was ever independent from Him. It is the mercy of God to allow mankind to think that we can live autonomously or independently from Him. It says all things were created by Him in verse 16, through Him and for Him and in Him. What this means is Christmas is a reminder that we celebrate our complete allegiance to a Savior born of a virgin in a manger, because all supremacy belongs to Him. He deserves our worship. It's a reminder that anything we give allegiance to in our life is only capable of assuming power and exerting power from God. It's all His. It's all borrowed from Him. So whatever we give praise and honor and glory to, our call in Christmas and reminder of Christmas is that it belongs to Christ. It belongs to this baby. It belongs to this gift of God. Nothing in your life and nothing you will encounter is independent of Christ's supremacy. That's Christmas. But Satan likes to trick us, believing that it's possible. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers 
to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Not only is Christ supreme over all creation, Christ is supreme over all of God's people. Verse 18 of Colossians, And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. Christ is the head of the visible body. As He came to make the invisible God visible, He is now head of the visible body, that is the church. To say He's the head is mean He is the life source. He is the leader. Meaning without Christ, we obviously know there's no Christmas, but without Christ, there's also no church. As Christ is the firstborn of all creation, so He is the firstborn from the dead in verse 18. But notice it is not those who are dead. It says He is from the dead, meaning they are no longer dead, but they are alive in Christ. It's not speaking of Christ, not only speaking of Christ rising from the dead, but promising those who have accepted His death for their sins and His resurrection from the dead that they may be given eternal life, that they too will arise from the dead as Christ did. He led the way. And without a personal confession in Jesus Christ, one cannot be a part of the body. You are not born into the church. You are not automatically a Christian simply because you live in a certain nation. It comes through a personal trust in Christ and what He did for us. Christmas, though, is a busy time of year, but what Christmas should be, since Christ is the head of the body, the church, Christmas is a call that we should be in church even more so because we are so busy. Because we have to be connected to Christ and the body of believers. It says in verse 18 that in everything He might be preeminent. It means that He reigns supreme over all His people. Christmas is a celebration that we belong to Christ, but it's also a celebration that He claims us as His own. His brothers and sisters, His family. This is why Christmas isn't just this time of year, but it's meant to be the heartbeat of believers. Christmas celebration that Christ is supreme and Christ is all-sufficient, verses 19 through 20. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His, Christ, of his cross. To say something is self-sufficient is to say that it needs no help or aid outside of itself. And we like to think sometimes that we are self-sufficient, but the Bible points that we are to be Christ-sufficient. In other words, we can't do anything without the sufficiency of Christ. We are inadequate and incapable of anything which glorifies the Father because we are naturally sinners. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For this reason Christ is all-sufficient, and He is our sufficiency. The promise of verse 19 is the one way we know Christ is that Christ is with us. In the Gospel of Matthew, the term is Emmanuel, God with us. But not only is God with us, in verse 20, it says that Christ is for us. And throughout verses, we're told all things are by Him, through Him, for Him, and in Him. It means as Christians, as followers of Christ, everything we do must be by Him, through Him, for Him and in Him. He is our sufficiency because without Him, we are inefficient. He is with us and He is for us and we are to live with Him and for Him. And this is the message of Christmas. Christmas is a reminder that Christ was not a plan that God threw together to finally solve the sin issue. Christmas is a celebration that Christ was the plan all along before there was a sin problem. 
The Gospel of John says it like this in chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, but He has made Him known. Christmas is the celebration of the power and authority of the supreme and all-sufficiency of Christ. But Christmas didn't come with a dictator pronouncement. Christmas came to reveal the love of a Creator who universally reigns over all His creation and grants those who are made in His image the choice to give their allegiance to Him. Verse 19 of Colossians says, The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in a baby, in a manger, so that all might be reconciled back to the one who created them to be in His image. The word reconciled means to make something right with another. And Christ, through His birth, life, death, and resurrection, gives us the choice to celebrate that Christmas is a reminder we can be made right with a holy God. This is the forever Christmas story. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, and whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Christ was born to reconcile us to God. Why do we need this reconciliation? Stay in Colossians with me and turn to verse 21 of chapter 1. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, that's because of our sin, He, Christ, has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him being God. It's impossible without Christ alone. The question this morning is, do we know the true meaning of Christmas? That Christ came to announce His supremacy and announce that we need Him as our sufficiency. Is that seen in our life? Is that seen as we go about our day and about our week this next week? Do people see Christ reigning supreme in our life and that we are sufficient only because of Him? Maybe you're here this morning and you need to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ. The Bible says that God sent His Son to die for us because we are sinners, but He died and He rose again. The Bible says, when I admit that I am a sinner before God, I do evil things. There are some things I do I should not do. And I admit that before God, that I need forgiveness for my sins. And I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins and rose that I can be completely forgiven. The Bible says, I make this a confession of my faith and I will be saved. You may be here this morning and that's exactly what you need to do so you can celebrate Christmas. I'm going to ask you to come down and say, Pastor Mike, I want to be saved. Tell me how I can do that. Maybe you're here this morning and you've already begun a ball humbug type of heart because you've lost the focus of what this season is truly about. God came down to save us. We're going to pray. I'm going to ask Jackson to come and lead us. It's going to be a time to respond. The Bible says we're not just to be hearers of His Word, but doers. And so this is why we call this a time of invitation. And I'm going to invite you to come and respond how God has spoken to your heart. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this day. Thank You for loving us. Thank you that you came down. Thank you that you are for us. You are with us. You promised to never leave us or forsake us. 
And Father, as we go about this week, as we go about this day, as we go about this month, Father, remind us to lift you up. Remind us where we go, we are representatives of you. We are your ambassadors, you appealing through us. Father, forgive us when we let this time of year get lost in all the commercialism and all the other things that go on. Help our hearts lift you up as our supreme God and leader over our life. Thank you for this day. I thank you for this time of gathering. I thank you, Lord, as many of us are going through a time of sorrow. But you are the Prince of Peace. I pray for strength. Pray for your blessing and presence upon our lives. I pray for those here this morning, Lord, who are not your children. And they need to change that today. Father, let this be the day of their salvation. Let your spirit reveal that to them. We ask that you alone be glorified in this time. We praise all in the name of Jesus.